welcome to the struggle in victory. You are here, my friends, because you are striving to hear stories of people overcoming challenges in their life, pushing themselves to new heights beyond anything they thought possible, beyond anything their friends or family thought possible. Sit back, enjoy the stories, and see what you can make of your life. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Struggle and Victory. Today, my guest is Brian Akers. Brian is another individual who reached out to me on social media. We started following each other, and lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, he invited me to be on his podcast, The Flytrap Coalition, where he interviews endurance athletes, coaches, <clears throat> but not only does he look at the sports side of things, he looks at mindset, nutrition, and just what it means to be an athlete. And along with that, he's an ultra runner himself. He's, he's done some amazing things. He's trained in triathlons. He's trained in other things that I probably don't even know aware of. So Brian, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, man. Good to talk to you again. So let's talk about the Flytrap Coalition. I know I asked you off air, but how did you come up with the name, the Flytrap Coalition? Yeah. So it kind of, it kind of morphed a couple of different times. Uh, I had an Instagram handle called the vegan Flytrap. Okay. So I went vegan like six or seven years ago. And, and that was just mine. It just had a cool ring to it. My wife actually came up with the name and I liked it. So I ran with that for a few years. And then when I went to do the, the podcast, I wanted to make sure it was inclusive. So the coalition part was, was key because I wanted it to feel like a, a group of people. I wanted people to feel like this was a group that they were now a part of. Um, so I, the coalition part of it was huge. And then the flytrap just kind of more from vegan flytrap. I like the sound of flytrap. <laughs> so it's just kind of a goofy little thing, but uh, it had kind of a cool ring to it. I felt like it was a little more memorable, you know, and uh, yeah, that's, that's how the name came about. Okay. And talking about, you know, we've mentioned it, the idea of podcasting now, you know, a lot of people are doing podcasts, but then there's also a lot of people who think about wanting to do a podcast. What got you interested in doing a podcast to begin with? Yeah, I was a big fan before I started my own. I used to listen to the Rich Roll podcast, um, Making Sense with Sam Harris, Joe Rogan. And I love that long form conversation where people could actually put their ideas together instead of having just quick little sound bites or, or YouTube videos. I love that that dialogue. And so, you know, there was a quote that, that really spoke to me that said, whatever you want to see more of in the world, go do that. And that really rung true to me because I was like, what do I want to see more of in the world? And I really just wanted more conversation. And I wanted more conversation on ultra running. I wanted more conversation on philosophy, psychology, human nature. So I thought, well, why don't I go put some of that into the world, you know, and actually create some of that content for myself. And I messed around with the idea for years before actually taking action on it, because the idea of starting a podcast is intimidating. If you don't know anything about it, it seems like it might be complicated. And the technology has gotten so good now to where, a couple of different apps um, really make it easy for you. The microphones, you know, are not as expensive as I thought they were. You know, this mic was 60 bucks. You get that and a couple of free softwares and you can honestly have a podcast in a day. So it's really easy to do. So once I realized how easy it was to start up and was less intimidated with the tech, uh, I just fired it up and a buddy that I went to high school with was an ultra runner. And I thought, why don't I start with him? And he ended up being a great guest. I loved talking to him. The podcast went great. It got great feedback. And, you know, from there we're, we're off and running. So, you know, I think if people are interested in starting a podcast, just jump in, you know, I'm sure I'd love to hear your take on it too, how you got your started, if it was similar enough, but I feel like 
you know, these things are so intimidating until we just do them. And then we realize, oh, this wasn't so bad. And uh, really anybody can do it. And so it's a lot of fun, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's like people think the the entry point into podcasting, like you said, it's like, oh, it's an expensive mic or expensive this or time consuming. Start small is actually, I've tried doing two podcasts with two other individuals and we had a couple episodes recorded. Some of them got published, some of them did not. But the key thing was just recording and like, hey, I don't know where this is going to go, but let's try and you kind of, you find your way of what's going to work, what's not going to work for you. And I think I think that's the hard part is people don't recognize, hey, what do I want to put out in the world as a podcast versus, hey, I just want to record and whatever it is. And I think that's where people get lost. Absolutely. And I think if I was going to give somebody advice, I would not worry one bit about how your podcast is going to be perceived or what do, what do, what, what do people want to hear? You know, I would not do that. I would, I would say what, make a show that you would want to listen to make the show that you want to make and the chips fall where they fall. Don't have a guest on just because you think it might be popular. Just stay in your passion. You know, if you love crochet, do a podcast on crochet and, and it's a big world. You know, there's a lot of people that have access to podcasts. So you're going to find your little group that loves what you do rather than try to find some mainstream topic. And now you have to play this character and now you're reliant on the audience for your own self-worth. And that's a bad way to go. So I would say, find something you want to talk about, make a show that you would actually want to listen to. And if you stay on that path and you're consistent, you know, you'll be off and running and have some success for sure. 100% agree with that. In terms of reaching out to athletes, is going through your guest list. You have quite an eclectic group of, of guests, whether it's people in the St. Louis area or people from other countries. Talk about how you get guests from, you know, other places. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a challenge. I think that's probably my biggest challenge is I'm really selective about who I bring on. And, you know, that's resulted in maybe not the volume that I would really need to get you know, the trajectory of the podcast going more on a hockey stick straight line up. It's been more of a gradual, slow grow, but you know, what I really look for is depth, depth of character. Um, so I want people that are obviously accomplished, right? Because they have the recipe that other people are looking for. So I try and find people that have done some impressive things, um, either from an athletic performance standpoint or just a perseverance standpoint. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be an endurance sports. I mean, I've had uh, Jay Oliveira, who's a world champion uh, in jujitsu. I've had some authors on the show. But yeah, I like to get people from all over the world because it's such a great opportunity to do so. You know, we just had Harold Bjerke on from Norway. Um, I had uh, Sebastian from, uh, I think it was from Slovenia. And I like getting those guys on there because I feel like I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and not a lot of cultural diversity here from, you know, in terms of not a lot of people move here from overseas, you know. Um, so it's cool to, for me to expose the audience to people, you know, with different lifestyles from different areas of the world. And uh, but really, I'm looking for depth. I mean, I want people that are athletic and have done great things from an athletic perspective, but that are mindful that have a philosophy on life that can go a little bit deeper than just like, here's my marathon time, you know, and that was one of the reasons I was drawn to you to have you on as a guest. Obviously you check the box for the athletic performance. You've done some amazing things, but listening to you interview your guests, it's obvious to me that you're a listener, that you you're, you're curious. Um, and there's more to you than just being an athlete. And that's, that's really the criteria that I, 
I look for. Um, in terms of getting guests on, it can be hard when you're a newer podcast. I mean, I think I'm 13 episodes in. You, you're not going to get. I've 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 invited a lot of big names on, um, and sometimes you go through like their little agencies, and they're like, "Well, what's your listenership?" And if you don't have huge numbers, you can't get those people. So it's really kind of a a skill and it's persistence to try to just keep reaching out to people that you find interesting. And it's been kind of amazing how receptive people are. There's a lot of people that are happy to come on and, and tell their story. You, you find the same for yourself? Yeah, obviously. I'm in the same boat as you, you know, new, new podcast that only started a couple months ago. But what I've noticed is tapping into my local community. A lot of my podcast episodes are local San Diego runners and just, Hey, starting there, that's been so much fun to, to get their stories and the feedback I've gotten from other listeners saying like, Hey, thank you for getting this person on. I got to know them a little bit better than, than I had known them before. Yeah, man. P people are amazing. You know, you have people on a lot of times. One of the most fun things that I do is I'll have somebody on and I'll prepare, but I try not to over-prepare. And it's amazing the stuff that unravels in these conversations. There's very little long form conversation. You know, if you and I were just two runners in a running group, we probably wouldn't have gotten a coffee and had a thing where I just ask you questions for an hour and a half, you know? So the podcast allows people to do that and they get to know each other. And I feel really close to my guests after I get done talking to them. And it's always amazing to me, the stories that unravel, you know, I'll know their stats and I'll know some basic things about them, but the stories that unravel through these conversations are phenomenal, you know, and everybody's got a story to tell. And it's really cool to help people share their, share their story and insights because everybody's worthwhile and everybody is deserving to, to have a platform like that. So it's cool to, to be that for, for other people. Yeah. And one thing that just came to mind is you're talking about, Hey, you know, you, you can know someone's stats, like, Hey, they've run this time for a marathon or they've done this distance in the ultra world, but to know them as the person, I feel like that's the foundation of who they are. So kind of like the little, you know, lumber pieces that go across, build the house, and then the times and the the distances, those are more just like the outside decorations of the house. 100%, 100%. And I find that especially in endurance sports, the people that do the best and have longevity in their careers are people that are centered as individuals. You know, the running is secondary. Um, I think if you're, if you're all about the running and all about your performances, you're very vulnerable to injury. You're very vulnerable to burnout because you're defining yourself by your athletic performance. But the people that I know that can go the furthest and the farthest in ultra are the people that are the most quiet in their mind and the people that work on themselves day in and day out. So it's, it's cool to, to uncover those kind of unlock those codes. Okay. So kind of switching gears from the podcast going into, you know, your own athletic background. You've talked about how at one point you've dealt some with some food issues and alcohol issues. Talk about where you were a couple of years ago to where you are right now. Yeah, man. Um, you know, I grew up as an athlete. I played all the sports in elementary school. I played uh, high school basketball as captain of my basketball team in high school. And then went to uh, Southeast Missouri State, which is a D1 school. I was not good enough to play uh, D1 basketball. All my friends were going there. So I ended up going there. And that's really when, you know, I played inter intramurals and stuff. But that's kind of when my character switched in terms of in high school, I was good grades, you know, National Honor Society basketball player. And then once I got to college, and I was an hour and a half away from my house and with all my buddies, it really just became about partying and drinking, you know, and, and, uh, at that time you're 18, 19 years old and all your friends, my friends were all doing the same thing. I joined a fraternity and we were just drinking all the time and, um, didn't really realize there was a problem at that stage because everybody else is doing it too. But now looking back on it in hindsight, 
my friends were still going to class. My friends were still working towards their degree. And for me, it was just all about partying. So my second semester at school, I had a 0.6 grade point average. It's not two points, just 0.6 GPA and was on academic probation and was just partying like four to five nights a week, skipping class, dropping classes. And it really continued like that for like about three years down there. And I had a great time, but looking back on it now, I can see that the alcohol was affecting me differently than it was affecting my friends because it was controlling my life. My life was no longer under my own control, but you know, I came out of school, came out of college, um, didn't finish my degree, came back to St. Louis moved in with a buddy of mine in this notorious drinking neighborhood called Soulard where there's a bar on every corner and really just did that throughout my, my twenties. Um, you know, from the time I was 18 till 31, when I finally quit drinking, it just, it just owned my life. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to talk about because there's a lot of young guys and girls, I think that deal with this in their twenties, but they're not exactly sure how to talk about it, how to navigate it. Um, so I, I think it's an important topic, but, uh, you know, looking back on it, I was not the guy that, you know, was drinking in the morning by myself or walking around with a, a flask of whiskey at work. It was all what I considered at the time to be social drinking, but I was doing it three or four nights a week. And when I would go out and quote unquote socially drink, it, it, there was never a time when I had two or three beers and then went home. It was always as soon as we started drinking or I started drinking, it was off to the races, you know, and it was how quickly could I get drunk? How drunk could I get? Uh, I was never willing to go home. I was always the one that was like, let's go to the next place. Let's do an after party. Let's go to wherever. And, um, you know, would wake up and be just super hungover, super guilty conscience, you know, just feeling like really, really anxious in the mornings after a long night out. And, you know, I think the hardest part, again, in my early twenties up to probably 27, all my buddies were doing it as well. So even though it was affecting me differently, I was missing work, things like that. I still felt like this is just what you do in your twenties, but I missed a lot of the warning signs that this was actually an issue for me. So as I got into my late twenties and started seeing my friends buying houses, you know, moving along in their careers. And I was still just the guy at the bar and hangover started to hurt a lot more. Um, you know, I had a car accident. Luckily I didn't hit anybody else. I just it was I hit a telephone pole, believe it or not. Um, did about $11,000 worth of damage to my car. And I think that was my first wake up call. Um, realizing like, this is not good. You know, this is, this is really bad. I could have, I could have hurt somebody. I could have ended up in jail. Um, and what's weird is when you're in that state, I knew because I was drinking and driving a lot. I knew the path that I was on. I was going to end up in jail um, for a DUI or for crashing into somebody, or I was going to end up dead. You know, I, I knew for a fact that I was going to have a DUI. I never had one, luckily, but I knew in my head, I was like, I'm going to get a DUI or I'm going to hit somebody. I'm going to wake up in the hospital or in jail one of these days. And I didn't care. I mean, that's, that's, you know, where I was, the, the alternative was stop drinking. And at that point in my life, that was not really an option. I mean, everything I did revolved around alcohol. If I was going to a St. Louis Cardinals game, it was where are we drinking before? How much can we drink during? Where are we drinking afterwards? It was not about the game. If we were going to play golf, it was about how much beer can I drink on the golf course? So I think the hardest part was that time between like 28 and 31, where I was trying to decide if I had a problem or not do I really need to quit or am I just being too hard on myself? Do I just need to settle down? Is it just because I'm single? Is it like, and I think 
you know, I went to a, um, an AA meeting. I reached out to a buddy of mine who had stopped drinking and he was like, go to an AA meeting, just go check it out. He's like, you don't have to say anything, just sit there and soak it in. And what was funny about that was every person that talked in that meeting, I understood exactly what they were saying. You know, whether it was the 17 year old girl that was drinking too much or the 65 year old man, when they started talking about alcohol, I was like, I get it. That makes sense. Cause we all had the same thing in common, which was once we started drinking, we couldn't stop. And it was causing negative effects on our life. Um, you know, one time I, I talked to one of these guys after, after the meeting and I said to him, like, I'm not really sure if I need to quit drinking or not. I'm trying to figure it out. And he was like, this meeting was in the bottom of a church basement. And he was like, well, let me just tell you something. He's like, normally people who have a healthy relationship with alcohol don't find themselves in church basements talking to guys like me. And I was like, you're probably right, man. You're probably right. The fact that I'm in here um, probably means I need to quit. But uh, I was able to finally quit at one point. I just I had started drinking the night before at like or the morning before at a golf tournament, like eight o'clock in the morning. And by midday, I was, you know, off my head and continued drinking until late into the morning hours. And uh, I was a real estate agent at the time. And I had to show property at like seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. I had to show this family six houses and I hadn't slept at all, you know, the night before it's kind of embarrassing, but you know, I, I fell asleep on my bathroom floor after, you know, having puked and just disgusting. There's nothing romantic about drinking behind the scenes. It's pretty nasty. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I went and showed these six houses on, on no sleep. I was probably still drunk. I was, didn't even have time to get a coffee in the morning. I remember I was wearing like this salmon pink shirt and these khakis with no socks and I'm like disheveled. And I got home from that and I was so hungover and I had tried to quit drinking like two or three times before that, but I was so hungover and so disgusted with myself. Um, because I didn't know anything about these houses I was showing. I just embarrassed myself. And I was the only right then in that moment, I told myself, cause I was so hungover. I was like, I'm never going to feel like this again. And that's what got through. That's what got me through that, that hangover. I just told myself tough this out over the next few days. And you're never, ever going to have to feel like this ever again. And that's what got me through that. And at that point, I never, and I never drank again. That was the summer of 2013, but there was a three-year lead up where I knew I needed to quit drinking and uh, that was the, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. But I'm just so lucky that I didn't end up, you know, having a way worse bottom than uh, than I have. But that was kind of the story with drinking. I know that's kind of a long tangent, but I feel like it's an important story to tell for anybody else that's, you know, struggling with that kind of a thing. No, yeah, I agree 100%. Thank you for sharing that story. And I wanted to comment that, you know, people have to get that, you know, some sort of bottom, whether it's, you know, professional embarrassment or something tragic happens where it's that wake up call, like, yeah, I don't want to ever feel like this ever again. And it sounded like after showing those houses for you, you're like, yeah, I, I can't do this for my own ego, for my own pride and just for my own integrity. And you, like you said, it's like, you know, the next couple of days are gonna be rough. But then once you got past those days, you're like, okay, what can I do to improve myself in other aspects? Yeah, hundred percent. And I've had a couple of people reach out to me, uh, friends of mine that are like, thinking maybe they should quit drinking and they know that I don't drink. And the only advice I can really give them is it's kind of unfortunate because I can tell them how great it is to be off alcohol, but I know in the back of my mind, and I want to tell them you're not going to quit until you bottom out. Like you have to bottom out. 
And um, that was something that AA taught me as well. I only went to a few meetings, but there were some of the guys in there gave me such good insights. They were like, I remember one guy told me, he's like, there's plenty of bottoms out there. He's like, you're going to find one. And, uh, you know, you keep down the path you're on, you're going to find a bottom and you're lucky if it's not a really bad bottom, because there are people sitting in jail that had a night out drinking and now they're in jail for five years, you know, cause they hit somebody with their car. Um, but you do have to have a bottom out moment, unfortunately, I think to stop, but, uh, man, once you quit, I remember, I remember the, the weeks after I quit, I would wake up on a Sunday morning with no hangover. And it was like the most revolutionary experience ever, because prior to that, for the you know, 10, 10, 12 years prior, every weekend I was hungover. There was never a weekend that went by that where I wasn't hungover. And I would wake up not hungover. My bank account was exactly where it was the night before. I don't have to call anybody or text anybody or apologize to anybody. My car is exactly where I left it. And that was like a phenomenal feeling. You know, that was, it was weird, but those first few weeks, first few months, I was like, this is awesome, man. And I started having energy, started running just felt like I have a life now. Like, what do I actually want to do? Because I had zero hobbies when I was drinking. Like if somebody would ask me, what do you like to do for fun? I had zero answer. It was like, I go to the bars with my friends and I drink. That's all I do. Play some golf and drink. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really opens you up when you stop drinking. It's a, it's a very raw experience though. You know, you kind of have to be ready to face the world. I thought all my problems would go away. I still had problems. I still had things I needed to face, but you can actually face those things instead of just covering them, covering over them with alcohol, you know, and I tried to keep going to the bars for like six months. I would recommend not doing that. If anybody's listening, like I had this thing where I wanted to prove to myself that I was still fun. I wanted to prove to my friends that I was still fun. So I was going to the bar and drinking non-alcoholic beers and it sucked. It was, it drained my energy being around drunk people when you're sober is absolutely brutal. And uh, if I could do that over again, I would have just skipped that six months and just been out of the bar scene. Cause now I'm out of the bar scene. I have no desire to go to a bar, but when you're so used to doing that, it's all, you know, but I would encourage people if you quit drinking, stay out of the bars and find fun stuff that you like to do, go hike or run or, you know, do whatever. Yeah. And you just mentioned something interesting where, you know, talking about, you know, facing the world, what I'm hearing is also facing yourself. Cause I think sometimes people use alcohol as a mask to kind of cover, like you said, the problems that they're facing, whether it's in their personal life, professional life, or, you know, something in their past that they haven't resolved. They're like, no, no, I don't want to look at it, but Hey, here's this alcohol. That's going to make me feel good make me feel happy temporarily. So I can forget about those problems. Yeah. One of the things I learned about myself was I'm, I'm more introverted than I thought I was. Whenever I was drinking, I was the life of the party. I was happy to go do karaoke, grab microphones, you know, buying rounds of shots. Like it, I was fun. I was fun to, to hang out with. You know, I used to get invited onto party buses for weddings, even if I wasn't in the wedding party, because they knew I was going to be stupid. And when I stopped drinking, if I go to a wedding, I'm not, I'm not even, I don't even like it. I don't really like to be where that, that would have been something I looked forward to back in the day. And now I'm like, I don't really, there's no way I would do karaoke. <laughs> you know, There's no way I'm, I just, I'm more introverted by nature and the alcohol masked all of that, you know? So I really didn't even have a chance to get in touch with who I was or what I was interested in, not to mention wasting my twenties. I mean, those years where, I mean, I'm going, I'm going to be 39 now in February. And I think to myself, what could I have done if I would have had all my twenties and, and early and mid thirties, you know, I stopped when I was 31 or 32, I guess, but man, if I could have had those years back, um, what could I have accomplished? But to your, to your point, there, yeah, you, you do have to look inside and, and find things out about yourself. And that is what I realized was like the alcohol 
was not really the source of my problems. It was the cover up. It was the the drug that covered up, you know, anything else that I might have had sitting beneath. And the alcohol also adds problems. So it's kind of a double whammy. You don't fix your existing problems, and then you add a bunch of problems on top. Not a not a good situation. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So after, you know, you kind of quit cold turkey, you're you're done with drinking, you're done with the bar scene, you start finding these hobbies of yours. Talk about how, you know, you start experimenting with different hobbies and kind of seeing what works for you. Yeah. One of the, one of the main things I got into was, um, was health, you know, just, just, I I had energy. And one of the cool things that I found was I started cycling and I started following some people online that were also cyclists. And what I realized was a lot of these people don't drink. And a lot of these high level athletes that I started following endurance athletes don't drink. And I found this book called finding ultra by rich roll. And he went through a similar story that I went through. He was this lawyer and had a corporate job and was blowing it and drinking all the time and then ended up quitting. And through that, he started finding ultra and uh, it gave me a reason to not drink that I felt like was made more sense than, Oh, I have a problem. So I'm not going to drink. Now it was like, Oh, I'm not going to drink because the athletes don't drink, you know, some of them do, but if you're serious about your training, not drinking is a huge advantage. So I I really was drawn toward that as instead of like, Oh, I don't drink poor me. You know, why can't I, all my friends are still drinking. Why do I have this issue? You know, and my grandpa died of alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. So looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, it was going to happen. But, you know, for a while, I think I was like, well, what? this sucks. And then once I found sports again, I was like, this is a, this is a huge advantage. So I started finding cycling. I was really into cycling for a while, um, messed around with triathlon training for triathlon a little bit. But really the thing that I, I think I found the most interesting was, was nutrition. And I started examining a, uh, a plant-based diet and the effects of a plant-based diet on your athletic performance and your health. And then also found uh, animal rights, which I never would have gotten into had I not stopped drinking. Again, I would probably be dead by now if I stopped, if I was still drinking, but I surely wouldn't have had any hobbies and I definitely wouldn't be plant-based and definitely wouldn't have explored animal rights. And that was kind of a cool thing that opened up to me. I don't know if you want to go into that or not, but. um, Yeah, no, let's, let's dig into it. So also you talk about, you know, you know, the plant-based going into with animal rights. I know in that community, sometimes the two go hand in hand. But talk about what can I drew you into the animal rights area and why you wanted to take a stand. Yeah, it was weird. It was it started out just with from a nutritional standpoint, and then I came across this speech from a guy named Gary Urofsky, and uh, it's on YouTube. I think it's called like the best speech ever by Gary Urofsky or something like that. But uh, it's Y U R O F S K Y, and he he was giving a college lecture, and he basically just talked about the ethical. Uh, the ethical considerations of eating, eating meat. And he wasn't annoying. He wasn't in your face. He wasn't like screaming at people in restaurants. He was just laying it out there as an ethical argument. Um, And he kind of, he kind of walked through the different things that happened in factory farms. And I had never known that before. I thought eating meat was just like, you know, there's these farms and these, these cows, that's what they're there for. And it's very humane and it's just part of life. That's how I grew up. And uh, when I learned what actually happens in these places, it was really kind of confronting. And, you know, as human beings that are compassionate beings, 
we don't want to hurt animals, right? Like we don't, if, if we were walking down the street and saw somebody harming a dog, like everybody would jump in. There's no, there's not one person on earth that would be okay with that. And I think that's because we're inherently compassionate towards animals. And when I found, found out what was happening in these places, and he actually showed some video on this, this lecture, it was really troubling. And then I, I watched the documents kind of started going down the rabbit hole, but keep in mind at this point, I was eating meat, cheese, milk, and eggs, three, three meals a day. I mean, I was, I was crushing animal products. So it was, I wasn't looking at this as a vegan. I was like, so I watched this documentary called earthlings and now there's another one called dominion. And it basically is just all this hidden camera footage of these activists that sneak into factory farms or they'll take a job working in a slaughterhouse just so that they can film. And it was like an hour and a half of this film of what happens to cows, chickens, fish, all this stuff. And I, I was like taken back. I mean, it was, it was like, it was really hard to watch, but I watched it. And then as I was continuing to eat animal products, it was feeling worse and worse. I didn't really want to give those things up because I loved them, but it was, uh, it was really begin becoming harder and harder to, to eat those things. And, you know, chicken wings were like my favorite food. And I remember one time I was eating an order of wings and I couldn't finish them. And for me, that was like insane, you know, cause I could eat, I could probably eat 30 or 40 wings at that time and have no problem. But I had like three or four and I was just seeing the bone and I was seeing the tendons and it was just like, ah, I can't do this anymore. You know, like, this is just, this is messed up for me. Like knowing what I know, I almost, in some, at some point, I wished I wouldn't have looked at it. Cause I was like, I wish I just wouldn't have known that it was much more, it was much easier to just be ignorant to it. But once I knew it became harder and harder and, and over like a nine month period, I switched over to, uh, to a plant-based diet and, you know, my cholesterol went way down. I lost like 25 pounds and it was kind of like not drinking. It was like, Oh, there's this whole other world here that I didn't know about. And it was, uh, it was great. I mean, for me, it was one of the best decisions, uh, best decisions I ever made, but it was, the process was through a lot of learning and, and self-introspection. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the thing you talk about, you know, from quitting alcohol to, you know, changing your food diet is all about kind of that introspection, taking the time to learn whether, you know, it's learning about yourself or learning about how these animals are, you know, treated in these, you know, food factory farms. So I think it's very interesting to see the correlation between the two. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, we started an animal rights, myself, my wife, and my sister started an animal rights group to try to wake people up to this. And I think it's important because the, the vegan movement and the animal rights movement, I think it can turn people off. There's a, there's a segment of that group that wants to, excuse me, they want to, they want to shame people. They want to, they want to scream at people and tell them they're horrible. And I think that just turns everybody off. Um, that's not the way I would, that's not the way that I learned about uh, a plant-based diet. That's not the way I learned about animal rights and the things that happen on factory farms. It's through an educational process that reasonable people can take the information in and then make their own informed decision on what they want to do. So we started this group called uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless, where we would actually go out onto busy streets and busy neighborhoods, and we would have uh, like four high-definition flat-screen TVs in each direction in a cube, and we would just show footage from factory farms, undercover footage from factory farms. And then people, of course, walking down the street were like, what is this? So they would start to watch, 
And then if they stayed there for like 30 seconds or so, then we knew they were interested, you know, so we weren't trying to get everybody. We weren't trying to start fights. It was if somebody stopped and was interested, then somebody else, we would go up and talk to them and just say, Hey, have you seen this before? You know, did you know this goes on? And we would explain like, kind of like what's happening in the videos. And it was amazing. I mean, we would have, we would do these for like two or three hours in an afternoon and we would have anywhere between 15 to 60 or 70 people that would stop and talk to us. And actually, as a result of the conversation, say, you know, I, I would maybe consider going plant-based because of what they've seen. Most of the people had never seen it before. This footage is hidden away. There's reasons that there's, there's, you'll never have a field trip to a slaughterhouse um, because the things that go on there are just, it's like a, a, a horror movie, you know, things that you wouldn't wish upon your, your worst enemy. And, you know, through this educational process, actually showing people what's going on, uh, I think that we converted a lot of people over to at least being open to the idea. And, uh, you know, just kind of to your point, it's an introspective thing. And I, I wish more people would do that instead of kind of being in everybody's face. And, uh, you know, most people are reasonable, compassionate people. And if you can give them the information, you know, I think they can go a long way towards helping them make a, a different decision. Okay. Yeah, no, that's interesting way you talk about where you know, there's some, some groups or, you know, sex of, of specific groups are in like in your face. They're trying to shame you. They're, they're trying to say, Oh, you're the, you're the evil person <clears throat> versus this, this approach. You're like, Hey, I just want to give you guys the knowledge the facts where it's like, yeah, here's a firsthand account. Here's the video evidence. We're willing to discuss it with you, but you know, here it is to, and then use it for, you know, how you deem fit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's our whole society right now. Everybody wants to get into a, get on a certain team and fight with the other team. And in some ways I can get it. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. So you want to fight and you want to make your voice heard. And, you know, I still do some of that myself online. I'll probably post some things from time to time that are a little bit, you know, maybe confronting for people, but you know, when it comes to the animal rights thing, it's such a big deal. Um, you know, what these animals go through is so bad that it's, it's like, I know that it's probably annoying to some people and I hope I'm not turning any of your audience off by continuing to talk about it. But, you know, we, we had a trip where we went to Chicago and we went, we visited a slaughterhouse. And when we got there, there was a truck outside of the slaughterhouse and we walked up to it and there was probably a hundred pigs in there. And up on top there were goats and it was probably eight degrees outside in downtown Chicago in the winter. And, you know, we, got face to face with these pigs that were about to go into the slaughterhouse and they were, you know, standing in their own shit and they're, they're like, you know, lacerations and they're, some of them are huddled up to keep warm and some of them are not. And some of them would come up to us and we're giving them water and stuff. And, you know, you look into their faces and it's no different than, it's no different than a dog. It's no different than a, a child. I mean, there's someone in there, you know, that there's a, there's an animal in there having an experience at the center of its own experience, you know, and it's just through pure luck that I was born as myself, but I was not born as that, that pig, you know, that's only known misery that was born inside of a factory. And, you know, now it probably a year and a half old is, is about to be killed inside this, you know, nasty building in downtown Chicago. And you look into their faces and it was like, they, they didn't look scared to me. I think this was the thing that stuck with me the most. They were like, they were just confused. You know, they had this look of confusion in their eyes. Like, what is this? Like, where am I? I don't understand what's happening to me. Um, and it was pretty sad. I mean, we left there. We obviously couldn't help them. You know, we're not going to set them free and 
uh, Chicago and go to jail and all this stuff. But we wanted to bear witness to let them know that, hey, at least we saw you, you know, show them one compassionate look and some water to at least say, hey, we know you were here and, you know, we honor you. And but it was sad. A couple hours later, I, it hit me. I was thinking to myself, all those animals are dead. You know, every single one of those pigs that we just saw was, uh, you know, probably stunned. They're, they're usually electrocuted and hung upside down and have their throat slit. You know, um, it's pretty sick. It's pretty sick what we what we do to these animals. And so I don't know, it's it's a tough one, but I think it's something that we should all look more into to at least get the facts, because, you know, the meat and dairy industry has this thing covered up and uh, it's it's pretty sick. I mean, I think 100 years from now, we're probably going to look back on it and be like, I can't believe that actually that actually happened. But uh, yeah, that's my rant on animal rights. Sorry. <laughs> nah, no worries. No, I appreciate you kind of sharing your, your own insights and experience with that. And I think some people who aren't aware of it, I think this will be good for them to at least hear it. I want to kind of switch over you talking about, you know, the conversations you have with the people with these outreach uh, days where you'd have the cubes of the videos. You talk about going plant-based for somebody who's considering going plant-based how would you transition them like, Hey, you know, if they're, you know, using meat, eggs, dairy, whatever it is to beginning that transformation into that plant-based diet, how, how would you say, Hey, here's a good way to start. If I got a simple, simple level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would, I would indoctrinate yourself in, um, in the research. So like to give, to give actual examples on where people could go to get started, there's a documentary called forks over knives. It's a, it's a great documentary. It's easily accessible. There's a, a doctor on there, uh, Caldwell Usselstein, and he's a world renowned heart surgeon at the Cleveland clinic. And he kind of is the centerpiece of this documentary and it's him and uh, another Dr. T Colin Campbell, who does the same type of work. And these guys are literally curing heart disease. Kishin were used to word curing, but they're finding that they can stop and reverse heart disease through a plant-based diet. And there's so much good information in there about what to eat and the health benefits and some of the common myths and those types of things. So I would definitely watch forks over knives. I would definitely watch a documentary called the game changers. I don't know if you've seen that one, Mark. Um, it's more from the, an athletic performance viewpoint on a plant-based diet. So they bust a lot of the common myths around protein and, you know, calcium and that different things that people are afraid of when they go on a vegan diet. Now the documentaries are a starting point. Um, there's also one called cowspiracy that talks about the uh, environmental aspects of factory farming and another one called what the health. So that's four documentaries. Those are a starting point. I feel like those are the best introduction uh, point because documentaries are easy to watch and they're entertaining and people can soak up some of that information and at least get a starting point. And then from there, find some good plant-based podcasts and things like that, just to continually inundate yourself with good information in terms of what to eat and those types of things. I, what I try to go for and what I'm doing my best on my diet is when I just go for a whole food plant-based diet. So you can be very unhealthy as a vegan um, Oreos are vegan, you know, I mean, potato chips, soda, beer, whatever, like there's so many unhealthy vegan options. And now you're getting a lot of the, uh, the, the processed meat substitutes, you know, beyond meat, impossible meat, which taste awesome. And they're good for like transitioning, but they're not healthy foods. Right. So I think the best way to go is to go on a whole food plant-based diet. So really by whole food, I mean, no ingredient list. So like an apple is a whole food, um, any kind of fruit, vegetable. And then from the grain standpoint, I would not be afraid of, of whole grains. So like a big go-to for me is quinoa. 
Um, it's kind of just like a, a for me, a, a healthier version of rice. Um, so I'll, I'll just do like quinoa, beans, chop up some veggies, stir fry them. That's it. That's an awesome meal. You know, oats and blueberries, awesome meal, uh, veggie wraps, hummus, you know, guacamole, these types of things, uh, whole grain cereals with some oat milk. But, uh, the main pitfall that people find when they go on a plant-based diet is they just don't eat enough calories. So calorie density is a, a big thing. You know, if you eat a, uh, I mean, you could probably eat half a watermelon and you're going to have like 500 calories, right? So people don't eat enough food. They don't eat enough volume when they go vegan. So they end up in a caloric deficit, their energy drops and they feel like, oh no, I couldn't go vegan. I was too tired, you know, but it's really just that you weren't eating enough food because you really have to get used to what type of foods to eat. But if you stay with the whole food plant-based, number one, it's very inexpensive. It's kind of a peasant type of a diet, right? Like rice, beans, veggies, um, staples, oats. This is not expensive food, bananas, you know, uh, some of the cheapest foods on the planet are also the healthiest foods on the planet. So I, I would stick to those, I would stick to those staples as far as like, uh, vitamins and minerals and things like that. The only thing to really keep an eye on is B12. Um, you can, you can buy B12 supplements at the store. They're super cheap. Uh, take, you know, three or four of those a week. Uh, and the other one is just D3, but you know, D3 vitamin D really comes from the sun. So if you're in a place where it's cold, take a vitamin D supplement and you're, you're pretty much golden B12 and, and, and vitamin D and, uh, yeah, whole food plant-based. I, I've never seen anybody go on this diet and not lose weight, not feel better, not experience clearer skin, better sleep. It's kind of, for me, it's kind of foolproof and it's better for the animals and better for the, uh, the environment, but do your own research, dig into it. And, uh, I think it's, I think it works for most people. Okay. Yeah, no, I definitely think if those who are, you know, looking to go that way, definitely drop some good knowledge there in terms of, you know, for somebody who's, you know, always going to, you know, busy lifestyle, I'll see right now, some people are working from home a little bit easier, but how, how would you prepare for, for, let's see, how would you prepare food if, you know, if I want to do, you know, food prep for the week or, you know, kind of want to lay out some meals for a couple of days in advance, what's your setup for that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Brown rice, amazing. Quinoa, amazing. So you can make big pots of that. Get yourself a nice rice cooker, cook up a bunch of rice or cook up a bunch of quinoa at the beginning of the week. Beans are amazing for that. You know, you can either buy dried beans and, and soak them and cook them or just canned beans. Get yourself a, uh, like a, what do they call it? Like a hot, like a pressure cooker. You know, that works great for beans. It's not very much different than if you were going to prep, you know, for a, for a week where you're including meat and things like that too, because normally people meal prep, you'll see them, they'll have, you know, a piece of chicken and then they'll have like green beans and maybe some rice, right? Just basically remove the chicken, do more beans and more rice or more greens and more rice. Um, if you want some type of a protein in there, you can do tempeh, you can do tofu, but I find beans are really the best protein replacement. I mean, lentils are like, full of protein and they taste good. And they're really, really clean protein source. You're not getting that inflammation that you might get with an animal protein. So if you're, if you're dialed in and you want a meal prep, I would say, yeah, just, just uptick your grains and your beans and your veg and just remove the piece of meat that you have in the meal. But I mean, in terms of on the go types of foods, which I feel like are critical, you have to have foods that you can get to quickly if you're hungry. So, you know, something like a PB and J easy, you know, but make sure you get a nice whole grain bread, like Ezekiel bread or something that's really uh, full of whole grains, full of fiber. And then uh, a really high quality peanut butter, some kind of a fruit spread, 
you know, you can knock that out in five minutes, take that with you. Um, always keep a nice crop of bananas around. So once they're ripe, you can take those with you. I get laughed at at work sometimes because I'll bring six bananas with me into work. And they're like, you're going to eat all those today. And it's like, well, yeah, it's only 600 calories worth of food, you know, so I can, I can eat those throughout the day. Super easy, super fast, not going to get hungry. Um, I think that's key to have those types of foods. And look, if you need to get a bar, if you need to have some kind of a protein bar or something like that, keep those around. I find if you keep the foods, I would call those like silver metal foods or bronze level foods, you know, like the, the gold is your fruit, veggies, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. And then, you know, your silver is going to be like your whole wheat pasta, your brown rice, that type of thing. And your bronze would be like, you know, protein bars and more, a little more processed type of stuff. But if that's the worst that you eat, you're going to be in good shape. It's when you let yourself get too hungry and you reach for the chips and you're going through drive-throughs and you're doing that kind of stuff, restaurant food, that's when you're going to get in big trouble. But uh, if you keep, you know, we all have that thing where we go to the store and we buy only veggies and healthy foods. And then we get home, we're like, oh man, I don't want to eat any of this stuff. You got to have foods that you want to eat that are fast you know, that you have on hand. So you don't fall off the, uh, fall off the wag. And that's what I find works, works best for me. Okay. I want to transition going from, you know, nutrition, that plant-based diet to just nutrition into, you know, ultra runs. I know recently you participated in a last man standing competition and, you know, I believe that's kind of your first foray into the ultra world. If, if I remember correctly, talk about what drew you into the ultra distance and then specifically this last man standing race that you participated in. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great experience. I think what drew me into ultra, uh, was probably the, the book by Rich Roll, Finding Ultra, which is a great book. Um, I think that was the first time I had even found out what ultra is. And then I'm actually friends with a guy, his name's Abdullah Zinab, who ended up doing, I was following him before he started doing these epic, uh, races, but he did the Indian Pacific wheel race, which was an unsupported bike race across Australia. And he actually won that race. And then he, uh, in 2019, he took on the Trans America bike race, which is an unsupported race across uh, America. And when he was coming through Missouri, where I live, I was like, I got to go see if I can flag him down. You know, I, I, he's, he's in a different country. Like, how often is this going to happen? Because he lives in Australia. And my wife was like, you got to go see him. I'm like, yeah, I know. So he comes through. I got down there like six hours early. And I was just driving to find him. I'm going down all these windy roads. And eventually I spot him, you know, and uh, he didn't know I was coming. You know, I wanted to like, we kind of talked a few times online. We kind of knew each other, but uh, I didn't tell him I was coming down. I wanted to surprise him. And I remember seeing him and he's winning the race by like, uh, I think he was winning by like 18 hours. He's putting down, he ended up setting the record. So he's putting down this massive effort. And I saw him going up this hill in Missouri. We had these really steep hills. And he was just grinding, you know, nobody there knew that he was doing the race, like people in the town and stuff, like nobody would have known. And here's this guy out there. He's winning by 18 hours or so. And he's just putting down this massive effort. I could see it in his face, just grinding up this hill. And it was so inspiring to me because we hear about people winning these races and we kind of think in our heads about the glory of it. And we see them as like perfect figures, these Lance Armstrongs, Michael Jordans, we don't really get to see the grind, you know? And for me, that was probably the first time in my life that I actually got to witness what greatness looks like in its most raw form. And to see that he was actually suffering, you know, and he had been out there at this point, probably for eight days on the road, unsupported, not sleeping, going through all kinds of stuff. 
And it was really inspiring for me to, to see that. And then, uh, I drove a couple, he was on these Hills and there was no shoulder. So I'm like, I'm not going to stop him here. I'm going to let him finish this section. And I went up about an hour up the road and I stopped and then here he came and I was out and he stopped and I told him who I was and he was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Good to see you. Blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, uh, he's like, well, do you want to go get some food? And I'm like, yeah, sure, dude, of course. Yeah. Do you like, you sure? He's like, yeah, I'm going to stop in Farmington anyway. So he's like, it's like an hour up the road. I was like, okay, cool. I'll go there and I'll, I'll wait for you. So, uh, yeah, man, him and I sit down at this diner and he's in the midst of like this epic record breaking run. And I was hoping just to wave to him, you know, and maybe have him stop and say, hi, and here we are sharing a meal. And it was so inspiring, man. And it really made me it really made me question myself because here, here's me. And then across the table for me is this guy that's in the midst of this amazing feat. And, you know, I could see how exhausted he was. And he, you know, the lady asked him if he would go sign this map and he's like, Oh yeah, sure. Like, where is it? And it's across the restaurant. And you could see like just walking across the restaurant for him was like, all right. Yeah. And he was real courteous about it. You know, he did it, but it was like, I could see this guy just throwing down this effort. And I remember watching him ride off and he's riding slow, but he's like grinding through it. He had like another three hours to go before he stopped for the night. And I got back in my car and the contrast between what he was doing and what I was doing was so vast that it really made me question myself. Like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing with my life? And we get in these routines because in our normal everyday lives, we're all just kind of going through the motions and it's normal just to get up and go to work and then come home and watch some TV and go to sleep. Like that's what everybody's doing. And I think for me to be confronted with this guy who was doing something totally different than that, you know, he was out on this adventure by himself for, I think 16 days is, is it took him a little over 16 days to do it. And, uh, it really inspired me to kind of kick myself into gear and start really exploring ultra and running and cycling. And I think at some point I'd love to do that race, that Trans Am race that he did just to bring it full circle. But, uh, to get to your, your question about the, the backyard ultra, it was, uh, it was a great experience. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll stop and see if you had anything you wanted to jump in on before I do. Yeah, that. no, definitely. Uh, I want to talk about how you, you know, you, you met this guy in the middle cause you know, Missouri's middle of America, you met him in the middle of this epic race. And I think like you said, so many people see either at the beginning stages, like, Hey, here's somebody, I want to go do something cool. Or, Hey, here's somebody, here's the champion. They finished it's rare that we actually see people in the middle stages and like, you know, that raw, that raw version of themselves of just pushing and grinding. And I think, like you said, is something about it. I think it does two things for people, either a, like it, you know, it inspires you like, like what happened with your story or B, I think it kind of scares people away because I think maybe subconsciously they see that they compare like, Oh man, this person's doing this. What am I doing with my life? I don't want to see that because not that anybody's judging them, but they're judging themselves based on comparison to that other person who's doing this amazing thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. It is really unique to see somebody in the middle of that thing um, because it's so raw. I mean, just like layers of dirt, you know, and just the exhaustion. And uh, it was crazy. He was He was ordering a hotel for the night and uh, this was really cool, actually. He was ordering a hotel in Cape Girardeau, which is like an hour and a half away from St. Louis, because it's unsupported. So he has to make all his own accommodations. And he was on the phone with the guy, and I could tell how exhausted he was. And the guy kept asking him to repeat his credit card number. And just that act of repeating his number was like 
almost too much for him to handle. You know, that, that was the level of exhaustion. And if I never saw that, I would have just thought he's superhuman. You know, I would have thought, well, he's, he's something special that, you know, I could never do that. But I saw, no, this dude is, this dude is hurting badly, but he had this attitude where it, it didn't matter. You know, none of that stuff mattered. He was just grinding through that stuff. And uh, I think that was probably the difference between him and everybody else in that race was just his attitude. He was just, he was not going to be denied. Um, so it really, yeah, it, it could go either way. You're absolutely right. Somebody else could see that and, and, and want to label him as crazy or, you know, a different type of person. But for me, it was inspiring because it was like, anybody can do this. You have to be able to put the work in. I mean, he trained for a year for this thing specifically and had been training his whole life really, but, uh, anybody can do it. It's who's willing to push harder, you know, who's willing to go into that really deep, dark place and continue to go. And I'm not sure I know exactly what it is that, that makes somebody continue in that state, but you know, he definitely has it. And I think it is something that can be found. I don't think it's something that we're necessarily born with. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so many people want to give that label like, Oh, they're just naturally talented. They got gifts from God. They've got, they got something that I don't have. It's like, no, we're all, you know, normal people. We've got arms, legs, brains, eyes, and that sort of thing at the end of the day is, you know, what experiences and what goals are you striving towards? And cause you actually mentioned this in some of your triathlon videos is, you know, working towards a goal that's going to send shivers down your body. We're like, Ooh, like, I don't know if I can do this, but it excites me. It lights me up. And, you know, I think that that correlation of recognizing, Hey, this is going to be tough, but you, you also mentioned, Hey, how am I going to feel once I accomplish this goal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I struggled for a long time with, with motivation, if you want to call it that. Um, and really what I've found is the reason we're not motivated to do something is because we actually don't want to do it. You know, if, if, if you think you're somebody that just isn't motivated and you're just lazy and all this stuff, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that you just haven't found something that actually lights you up inside because the, it's the only way we're going to continue to train on days we don't want to is if we find something that we actually just are drawn to, you know, and you're not always going to want to do it. It's still going to suck sometimes to go out and do the things you need to do, but you're going to know that that thing that you want is so important that you're going to go do it anyway. And we just need to kind of get this motivational thing out of our heads and realize that we're just probably blocked. You know, we, we just, sometimes in life, we have too much stuff happening. We're too stressed. And then, you know, to add something else in is too much, you know, somebody, somebody working 40, 50 hours a week, juggling finances, juggling a home situation, whatever it may be, the thought of adding in training sometimes is just, it's like we want to, but we're too exhausted. So I think, I think the two keys really are find ways to create space for yourself, find ways to strip some of that stuff away, you know, whatever it is that you need to do, whether you need to change your job or just put less into your job, whether you need to, to have a conversation with somebody that's close to you, um, find ways to create space in your life. And with that space will come clarity on what it is that you're actually passionate about. Many people think they're passionate about something because it sounds good. They want to lose weight because it sounds like, yeah, I should probably try to lose 25 pounds, but you don't, maybe you actually don't care. Maybe you're actually kind of fine where you're at weight wise. So then don't make that your goal, you know, um, really spend time in meditation, spend time in solitude, spend time by yourself 
and focus on yourself and spend time asking yourself questions about like, what do I actually want? What do I actually want? If I didn't have to tell anybody, if I didn't have to, because oftentimes we have a goal, we present it to people. And then we, based on their reaction to it, we just determine if it's a good goal or not. Maybe we tell somebody, Hey, I want to do a half marathon or I want to do a uh, ultra. They're like, Oh, that's crazy. And we're like, Oh yeah, maybe don't tell anybody your goals. Don't tell anybody. What do you want to do? What are you actually passionate about? Maybe it's not running. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's podcasting. Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's philosophy, whatever it is, find it. You know, maybe it's hiking, like find it and then pursue what you're, what you're actually drawn to if that if that makes sense yeah what i'm hearing is you know learning to prioritize and be okay with prioritizing things like you said is some things can stay or some things you know either got to be do less of or they got to completely got to go whether it's you know a job or or certain people or you know whatever other activities you're doing there's got you can't do everything at once like you know if you try to do everything you're going to be able to do nothing like you said it's people like oh it's too much to handle I'm, I just don't want to do anything at all. Yeah, absolutely. And society prioritizes all the wrong things. So like, that's where we take our cues from as society. That's what we're taught and programmed as from a young child is like, here's what's important. Schoolwork, uh, getting good grades in school, sitting in your desk, being a good boy or girl, not getting into any trouble. Don't ask questions. Don't fidget. Just sit there and do what you're told and then get your degree. Uh, you know, go to college, study business. Even if you don't care about business, just get your business degree and then go get a job. And these are the things that are celebrated, you know, go, go buy a house. It doesn't matter if you can afford it. Like just get a big mortgage, get married, have kids, buy some cars, go on some vacations. You know, these are the things that we're taught to prioritize from society. And then we wonder why everybody's, you know, many people are, are depressed and anxious and just feel like something's not quite right because you get trapped into this world where now you've got three kids and now you've got this big house and now you can't quit the job that you actually hate. And you never actually had any space to actually think about what you wanted to do. So all these things are rewarded. If I was to post on Facebook that I bought a house, I would have like a hundred likes. You know, if I was to post that I just got promoted to VP at my company, everybody would be praising me and celebrating me. And um, if I was to post something like, Hey, you know, it's important for all of us to be introspective and create space for ourselves. 10 likes, <laughs> you know what I mean, society has programmed us to, to consume and programmed us to take on as, as much responsibility as we possibly can handle. And if you're burned out and you're working 60 hours a week, that's a badge of honor. So I think we need to rethink our priorities and we need to rethink um, about the model that society has handed us because the model is not working. You know, we, uh, the, the results are in, you know, this, this type of lifestyle does not serve the common person. Um, so I think that process of unlearning the, the programming of, of society and the, the incentive system is, uh, is critical in order for people to determine whether they, what they actually want to do, leaving, you know, taking off that heavy backpack of, of societal pressures, will allow you the space to, to just decide what, what you want to do in your life. Yeah. And I think you're talking about, you know, going back to what I said earlier is finding that thing that lights you up inside that kind of, you know, send shivers down your back. You're like, Oh, I really want to train for this. I really you know maybe it is somebody's goal to own a house and, you know, have a family. Awesome. You know, if they, if they're the best husband or best wife or, you know, best father, best mother to their kids, 
and their kids grow up and, and, you know, are happy with how they are. Awesome. That, that's a win in itself. I think also people from, you know, from society pressure points only view wins in a certain capacity. Like, Hey, if you're the champion in basketball, or if you're the champion in triathlon, that's, those are the only champions versus, you know, I'm not saying you need to be given participation awards. They're like, Hey, you're, you're, you're a dad. Good job. It's like, no, no, no. Did you earn being a dad? Did you show up for your kids? Did you, you know, putting the time into, to make sure that they grew in a healthy place. And I think people forget about, Hey, you know, showing up and, and doing that, that's the award itself versus like, Hey, here's the word for, you know, world's number one dad. And you just sat on the couch all day. 100%. I mean, it's really about the internal versus the external, like being, being centered in your own body and feeling like you don't need anything from anybody is a very powerful place to be, you know, to, to not look to anyone else to get recognition, to not care what anybody else thinks about what you're doing, to just know that, you know, you yourself are good with who you are and what you're doing is a very, very powerful place to be. Um, and you're right. We have, we, we focus way too much on like trophies and, and this and that number one dad. And like, it's, you know, yourself, whether or not you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and what you want to be doing. And, and, and when that's not happening, all the awards in the world, I mean, you've used, you'll see highly successful people, people that have won countless, um, you know, look at like a Lance Armstrong or even like a Michael Jordan prototype. Michael Jordan was my hero growing up still is love Michael Jordan. And I don't know if you watched the documentary they just did on the bulls. Uh, what's it called? Uh, anyway, they did a documentary, like a 10 part series on, on Michael Jordan and the bulls and they're interviewing him now and he's retired and you can see, he still has that like competitive fire in him, but he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's like, it seems like it almost eats him up inside because that's what he's wired to do is to compete and win. Um, and that's awesome, but you also need to have that inner peace to go. I'm okay without it too. You know, that's kind of the test of something. If you're too attached to something, if it was to leave, would you be okay? Or would you feel like your whole identity is shattered? You know, and, and that's kind of a litmus test I would, I would use to, uh, to see if you're too, maybe too dialed into winning and com competition and that type of stuff. Yeah. And even Goggins has mentioned something where it's like, Hey, you know, what are you going to do if you can't run anymore? It's like, then I'll go find something else. And I know in like Rogan, he makes a joke or like, Hey, you know, maybe I'll go out and become the best scientist, like watch out or it's, you know, go find something else. That's going to, you know, still have that same thing where it lights you up, sends those sh shivers down your body or like, Ooh, I, I really like this. And it gets you out of bed in the morning and it gives, and it makes you inspired to go out and be in the world. Yeah, ex exactly. It, you know, I think, I think people were confronted with that last year with COVID-19 where their races got canceled. And it was like, what are you going to do now? You know, um, I think that was probably very confronting for people. And, and I've kind of thought about that. And I think what I want to do for myself, and I think this might make sense for other people, is instead of saying I want to run a hundred mile race, say I want to develop myself into somebody that's capable of running a hundred mile race. Because if you, if you become that person, and that race gets canceled, that's fine. You're still the person that can do it. You can point that at anything that you want to point it at, but it's more of a, and I think this is a good lesson for people goal setting in 20 for 2021, rather than stating the external goal, like I want to complete this race, say, I want to become the person that can do that. I want to become a person capable of running a hundred miles. I want to become a person capable of uh, doing 48 hours of, uh, you know, of racing in a row. Like, 
and if you do that, it's more of an internal goal rather than an external goal. And I think that's a much safer, safer meant in a good way, a much more um, practical and useful and a better way to go about uh, goal setting is always internal, always internal, always internal rather than external. External is whatever. External is like noise for the most part. I mean, it's fun to win races and stuff, but it's like, it's secondary, you know, it's secondary to, to, to when you go to sleep at night to know that you're, you're doing what you want to be doing. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, especially with, you know, races being canceled, people are like, okay, what am I going to do with myself? But, you know, fast forward recently, races are starting to come back and, and you recently participated in that back in the you know, ultra backyard. Talk about that experience where, you know, first, probably first race back on your schedule in a long time. And it's, you know, it's that last man standing concept of, you know, every four hour or was it every hour or every four hours? Yeah. So the way that the format works is everybody starts at 7 a.m. And you have a, a four mile loop that you have to complete by 8 a.m. So you have to complete this four mile loop inside of an hour. And if you complete it in 50 minutes, you, that 10 minutes you have to rest and all that stuff, just rest, eat, whatever. And then at eight o'clock, we start another loop. And then at nine o'clock, we start another loop. And you keep doing that until everybody quits except one person. So it's literally one person is the champion and then the rest, everybody else gets a DNF. Um, so yeah, so I, I signed up for this race. I have never run more than 14 miles in a training run. Um, so I'm a total newbie to the, to the ultra scene. And it was a great lesson for me because, you know, I had eight weeks to train. I didn't, I didn't go all out in my training. I trained hard for a few weeks and then I kind of laxed. And I thought in my head, you know, you only need to do 12 minute and 30 second miles to still have like eight or 10 minutes to rest. So I thought in my head, I, I can do 12 thirties. Like that's very doable for me. And I thought to myself, because I had the theoretical knowledge of ultra, because I've read books about ultra, I've interviewed top, you know, some of the best ultra athletes in the world. And I felt like I knew what this was going to be. And I did, I, I skimped on the training because I thought to myself, well, I'm, I'm tough mentally. I, I know what I'm doing here. I can get through this thing. And it was very humbling experience because I realized that the mental aspect of it is, is it's important for sure. But two things with that is number one, it's definitely not everything. You have to have the training. You have to have the body that can take you through it. And number two, that the mental side of it, I don't have yet. It's not acquired through theory. It's not acquired through interviewing people. It's not acquired through anything other than doing the actual races yourself, because there were points in this race, I, I made it 22 miles, which I was really disappointed in. I thought I was going to do at least 30 to hit the ultra distance over 26. I, honestly, I thought I could do over 50. And as sick as it is, delusions of grandeur, in the back of my head, and I didn't tell anybody this, in the back of my head, I was thinking to myself, I can, I can probably win this race, which is completely delusional thinking now that I've done it, because the guys that won the race, the guys that were first and second, I know for sure the guy that won second place does over uh, seven trained over 70 miles a week the whole year because he posted that on, online. I'm not sure Chris Boyle's the guy that won it. I'm not sure what his training is, but he's very fit. So I'm sure it's a lot. Those are the guys that won because they did the work. You know, the mental side of it is important for sure. Everything else being equal, you know, the, the person the strongest mentally probably wins with similar physical attributes, but it was very humbling for me because I think I was entitled. I think I thought to myself, well, I'm me, so I can just do this. And, you know, I'm going to have some kind of heroic effort and I'm going to win this race. And 
very, very delusional thinking. Um, so when I quit after 22 miles and the reason I quit, my body literally shut down on me. I, uh, in my psoas was like super tight. I, I literally couldn't get myself to go faster than I was going. And it wasn't fast enough to finish the last loop. And, uh, so it was very, very good for me to realize that yes, the, phys- the mental part is important, but it's number one, it's acquired through doing not thinking. And, and number two, that you have to train, <laughs> which to you, that probably is like, yeah, no kidding. Right. Like, of course you do. But for somebody new in the sport, it's like, no, you really have to put the work in. There's no cheating this process. There's no shortcuts. And, uh, that sounds cliche until you actually go out there and compete and you realize, no, that's legit. Like you have to train all year round if you want to compete in these races. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned a great part is, you know, somebody could be physically fit, but, you know, not adding that mental part. Let's say, you know, they're doing 30 minutes a day of running like, oh man, I'm in such great shape. I'm going to crush it. And then they get to an event like this where, you know, it's, it's every hour you're running and you know, that 30 minutes of great, that's a good foundation for maybe a couple hours, but it's not going to last if you're trying to go for, you know, five, six, seven, eight plus hours of running. There's, there's a difference between the two. And I think that's, you know, comes from the time of training where, you know, the guys who won and came in second, they've been grinding and putting in a lot of work. And I think when you grind and put in that kind of work for you, you know, especially on the days when you're mentally tired, physically tired, and you go grind, that's where you build that mental toughness. Like, okay, yeah, I can handle what, you know, what this race is going to throw at me because I've handled stuff that may be even been a lot tougher in training. Yeah. I mean, 100%. It's, it's amazing to watch these races because, you really, it's hard to tell going in who's going to, who's going to be the top people. You know, you'll see some people that look super fit. I mean, there's some young kids in this race. There were like, there were kids in their early twenties that were like wearing like university of Oregon hats. And like, you could tell these kids were like, I shouldn't say kids, these guys, these young guys were like legit college cross country distance runners. And like, look like, you know, there's bouncing around, they're talking, they're laughing. And you're like, these guys are probably going to go far in the race. And they, they didn't. You know, they, they, I think some of them went pretty far, but the guy that won, I think was in his Chris, sorry, if, if I'm getting this wrong, I don't know Chris personally, but I think he was probably in his forties, you know, and he's a very fit guy, but he's not a guy that you would see and be like, that guy's a, you know, super freak athlete. He's very, very in shape and the other guy too, but you just don't know. It's, it's, it's really about who's put the work in and who's the toughest mentally. And I, I think the guy that won was running for charity too. And I think that probably, uh, help, but I know he's done some hundred mile races and he's done the work, but, uh, it really is just that mental toughness. It's, uh, it's both, you know, I think that was the biggest takeaway. Like it, it's definitely, it's definitely both. Yeah. And plus, if I want to jump in here, coming from the college background is you got those college kids, you know, phenomenal at the 5k, the 1500, the 10k, or, you know, whatever distance they're training for, they're built for that speed. They're built for those shorter distances and they're going to go crush it, but you send them into a different arena Yes, there is some of that transition over, but, you know, if you're not putting in, you know, 50, 60, 70 mile weeks worth, you know, some 20 to 30 mile long runs and you come into the ultra world, you're going to get slapped upside the head eventually where it's like, you know, maybe you're talented and your body's like, man, we're good. You're, it's like a, what, 0.5 percentage of people who can actually make that happen. Like you can't do anything without the work. Yeah, exactly. And you realize how, you know, me going 22 miles after having gone only 14, you just see some of the things that actually creep up on you. Like there were times where I felt kind of nauseous. The food wasn't agreeing with me, you know, my uh, body pains that I wasn't used to having, you know, I never had a psoas flare up and that thing flared up on me. So I have a lot of respect, you know, when I had interviewed hundred mile runners and things like that, 
theoretically, when you hear somebody say, you know, my leg was hurting and my knee was hurting, but I kept going. It just sounds like, oh yeah, of course you did. Like you fight through the pain. That's what you do. But when you're actually experiencing that pain, it's a totally different ball game. I mean, you just question everything. You're like, why am I out here? You can get kind of emotional. You can get down on yourself. And there was the, the lap that I did before I ended up uh, quitting was like, I was falling behind these groups. People were passing me like people that I felt like I was way more athletic than were passing me easily. And you just start to play all these mind games with yourself. Like you just feel like you can be so low and so high. The differences. I mean, my, my run was very short. I was only out there for like five hours, but there were moments where my sister and my wife crewed me and where I was like doing like the LeBron James like stuff <laughs> and like cheering with them and being all cocky, not, not like an asshole, but like fun with them, you know? And then maybe an hour later, I'm like, you know, I'm probably not going to make it. Like I'm going to have to bow out at one o'clock in the afternoon after I had thought I was going to make it all night. You know, it's like, it's really a roller coaster of, uh, of emotions. I don't know if you feel like that when, when you're running too, it's like, it's really wild. The spectrum of emotions that you, that you feel minute to minute. It's bizarre. It's crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, I've noticed that in some, you know, kind of shorter, shorter long runs where it's, you know, you're from like 15 to 20 miles. I've noticed like, Ooh, like you said, you know, you get your moments like, Hey, I feel good. And there's other moments like, I gotta, I gotta grind my way through this one. You're like, man, I don't know how I'm going to finish the next five miles. And then you kind of hit that little dip that brings you out of here. Like, okay, cool. I'm bringing it back. Strike comes, keeps moving. So yeah, I think no matter the distance, I think usually anything over like 15 miles, people are going to go through those highs and lows. I mean, I'll see for somebody who's trained for just a half marathon, they're going to hit those highs and lows at mile five, six, seven, eight. I mean, just depends on where you are fitness wise, what you're training for. But I think that's with anything is you're going to have highs and lows just like life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's intense, man. It's uh, I think everybody should do it. Everybody should go out there and, and compete like that. You know, maybe you don't necessarily have to do it in a race format. If you don't want to, it's easier, I think in a race format, because certain things are taken care of for you. But uh, you know, if you're somebody that's on the couch and, and make a goal to like become somebody that can walk three miles, you know, and just start training, start getting out there and you'll start to experience some of these highs and lows that we're talking about. And life is a lot more fun when you actually experience. I mean, just for us doing that race, it was a great experience. We went down to, to Camdenton Lake of the Ozarks, which is a few hours away. We stayed in an Airbnb. We prepped, you know, we had my wife and sister were like having fun doing the crew stuff. Like life is, is greater for experiences. And I, I flamed out on this race. You know, it was an embarrassing performance for me, but I'm glad that I did it, you know, and I find that in life, things like stopping drinking, things like getting into ultra and doing poorly in a race, like these are some of my most fun memories now, you know, like I am, I wouldn't have, although I would have loved to have those years in my twenties, I'm glad that that all happened, you know, and um, life is just so much better for experiences. So, you know, quit the job and start the business. If you want to start the business, you know, if you're single and you want to ask somebody out that you've liked for a long, just do it, you know, just, just do it. And if you flame out and you fail at it, it ends up being like one of the best memories ever. You know, I, I don't know if, that's the same for you or not, but I feel like some of my biggest failures and some of the things that would be my biggest embarrassments are like, if, if you ask me for my top five, you know, memories, they would stem from some of those, from some of those failures for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like, for me, I'd say it's a mix of, you know, the good memories like, Hey, I, you know, I crushed a goal. I crushed this, but I think in terms of like the ones that are memorable, 
So yeah, it's like you remember the times where, you know, you got fired or, you know, you didn't perform as what you thought you were. And it just, it stays with you. And I think that's where people want to be. It's either, you know, it, you're going to remember it because of, you know, you accomplish a goal, you, you feel proud of yourself or you don't accomplish a goal. And you really remember that feeling of like, Ooh, I did not, I did not hit the mark or I was let go or whatever it was. And it, I think it gives people that, you know, internal motivation, hopefully to like, Hey, I don't want that feeling again. So I can, so I'm willing to put in the work to avoid that feeling versus like, you know, not saying you shouldn't experience those feelings of, Oh, I messed up or I didn't hit the goal, but you know, learn how to utilize it to your advantage. Totally. Totally. And excuse me, I interviewed a guy, uh, Scott Coomer, who has the 10 junk miles podcast and he made a great point and I didn't really fully embrace it until I did this race, but he had said, you know, he went out and did this marathon and he DNF'd a marathon. And now he's a host of a very popular running podcast and he DNF's a marathon publicly. And he made the point that by doing that, he's giving everybody permission to see him and then also go out and fail as well. Like, look at this guy. He just DNF'd a marathon. He's got a running podcast. And I felt the same thing for myself. Like, you know, I don't have a big podcast, but I'm sure there were people that saw my performance and thought like, oh, Jesus, like, I figured this guy could have done more, you know? And I think in some ways it gives them permission to go do who cares, like go fail. It's not, it's not a big deal, you know? Um, so I think in doing great things and in, in failing, we give people permission to go out and, and act as well, which is uh, which is a great thing. And then you have more life experience. You know, you can talk to people about the time that things didn't go well for you or you got broken up with, or you got fired or, or whatever it may be. It makes you a more well-rounded person. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. So kind of, you know, wrapping things up before I ask my final question, where can these guys find you and anything you would love to promote at this time? Uh, yeah. Instagram is probably the best. It's just at flytrap coalition, uh, flytrap coalition podcast. If you, uh, you know, Mark was a guest of mine or, you know, great guest. And I think it's a lot of like-minded people like, uh, like yourself on there. So people can check that out if they want to. And that's about it, man. No, no big sponsors or anything like that uh, for myself quite yet. So yeah, it's uh, at uh, Flytrap Coalition at Instagram would be the best way for sure. Okay, cool. For my final question, what do you do each day to make each day matter to you? Great question. What do I do each day to make each day matter for me? You know, I think that's a work in progress for me for sure. Um, lately, it's been mindfulness training, um, taking time to breathe. You know, I've got this breathing exercise that I do now and I can share it with you guys because it's been great for me. I, you know, I've never taken like a Wim Hof class or anything, but it's just, I take four breaths, four seconds, breath in, hold it. And then I take eight out, hold that. And I keep doing that and not in a way that makes myself lightheaded. Like I'm pretty e easy with myself on it, but I find that oftentimes when we think about meditation, we think that we need to lock ourselves in for like a, like a half an hour you know, or 45 minutes of meditation or 20 minutes, or I got to get everything perfect and set the room up. And now I'm going to meditate. What I found is I'll, I'll try to become more aware of when I start to get stressed or when I can feel my mind taking over and I start to get like manic about something or like, you know, not quite sure what to do with myself. Then I can catch myself and just do that breathing exercise for like, you know, 30 seconds or, or maybe three or four cycles of that, or I'll be, I'll be walking my dog and think, uh, okay, I just, I'm going to just do that breathing exercise real quickly. And I feel that once I do that, I'm recentering myself in my body constantly throughout the day. And I think that's probably the best answer to that question that I'm doing for myself right now to make every day matter. Because 
it's only from that calm centered place that you can actually be in touch with anything that you really want to do. Uh, everything else is just activity. It's mindless. It's work and this and emails and it doesn't matter. But when you can center yourself and your body and reduce the noise, then you can go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I remember who I am. I know what I'm about. And now I can act in a way that's going to further my life experience. So I think, I think that's the thing is, is that daily mindfulness practice throughout the day that's, that's helping me and, you know, hopefully continue to do that this year for sure. Awesome. No, I love how you talk how simple of a concept it is like, Hey, I'm just focusing on my breathing, focus on the mindfulness versus, you know, some people have like, you know, a 50 step process and, you know, some people, Hey, if that works for you, great. For you, it's like, Hey, let's just go back to the basics. What do I need to do? I need to breathe. What I need to do, be aware of my breathing. So that's it, man. I think, I think meditation gets, uh, it gets gurued out of control. You know, it's coolest. If you like, like you said, if you like to set up your room and do a nice long meditation, sweet, do it for sure. That's amazing. But really all you need is close your eyes and breathe. That's it. That's all that's really required to, to have a meditation practice. And if, if you only take two or three deep breaths and then you go on with your day, huge gains, huge gains. And if you can start to do that five or six times a day, you'll see, I mean, you'll catch yourself. I think the main thing you can do is we spiral in life. We get a weird phone call or a bad phone call or a work thing, or our boss beats us up. And then it, it, it translates, goes into the home and goes into your dinner and you get, you know, you, you say something to your partner that you didn't, wouldn't normally say it all spirals. So in these moments, if you can catch yourself early, you know, your boss sends you that email. It's annoying. You know, take a breath, chill that out, realize that it doesn't matter. Realize that, that that's, that's the matrix. That's the corporate America. That's what it's built to do. I don't care. I'm going to put that down. I'm going to breathe for 30 seconds. Now your day, you've just recaptured your whole day. That spiral doesn't happen. You caught it at the top and that's, you do that enough times. I mean, you can, you can really, really affect the quality of your, your life experience for sure. Awesome. Cool. Wait, way to, way to dig deeper into that. So guys, if you have not checked out Flytrap Coalition podcast, highly recommend it. I've gone through your list of a couple of the episodes. You know, he's got the jujitsu guy. He's got Sebastian from the triathlon world. He's definitely got in a wide array of guests on there, but they're even like he said early on is he picks specific people that are, you know, are like-minded, has interesting stories to share. So guys, if you're looking for, you know, different podcasts to listen to, Definitely recommend you go check them out. Go check them out on Flytrap Coalition on Instagram. But yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with him and getting to know him over these last couple of weeks. And to kind of wrap things up, guys, hopefully you take this message, run with it, and make today matter. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of Struggle and Victory. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on this show, send me an email at mark at markthecoach.net and I look forward to hearing all sorts of stories and getting you on the schedule.